What it means to write for the press at this time is is in flux. It's changing, but it means to be writing large amounts to quite tight deadlines. It's a, a kind of work in which you must be always hustling. This cohort of, of writers born in the 1560s, 1570s, they're competing for patronage, they're competing with each other in the, in the press, and none of them are particularly settled. Welcome back to the precarious world of Thomas Nash, where we're exploring the underbelly of Elizabethan England through the life and writing of the author Thomas Nash. My name is Kate DeRaker from Newcastle University. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Emma Smith from Oxford University and Professor Andrew McRae from Exeter University. In the first episode, we heard that the safe jobs that a university degree seemed to promise were actually few and far between for Nash and his generation of students. And yet there was also opportunity for these young men in what we might now call the creative sector. They'd been trained to write convincingly and to rework the classical stories and characters they knew from their school days. In this episode, I'm interested in what happened once these graduates found themselves working for the relatively new creative industries of the Elizabethan period. One way of making money was to dedicate your book to an aristocrat who in turn for a presentation copy would gift you a payment of an average £1. However, some writers were luckier than others. The writer, Richard Robinson, who tended to write religious and patriotic texts, kept a meticulous record of all the gifts and monies that he had received in his life, along with a waspish commentary which details his disappointment and humiliation by members of the aristocracy. Here he is talking about one such failed attempt at patronage. The Harmony of David's Harp, by me translated out of Latin into English, and commended by George Close, my countryman, preacher of St Magnus Parish in London. Dedicated by me to the Right Honourable Lord Ambrose Dudley, Earl of Warwick, who received my book at my hands, but rendered me no reward for the same. So basically, the Earl of Warwick has broken the social contract here. He gave Robinson no reward at all. Robinson tries again, this time with the fourth edition of this book a fourth proceeding in the harmony of David's harp, dedicated by me to the then and yet Right Honourable Sir Thomas Edgerton, knight, to honour him with my goodwill, his lordship grudging to receive my book or to render me any reward. His eloquent tongue tripped me in my suit, saying, What have we here? Begging letters? Not helping me, poor man, for the commandment's sake, he turned me away because of my poverty. Sir Thomas Edgerton also refuses to pay Robinson, instead choosing to humiliate him for, quote, begging money. Robinson eventually finds a patron for his book who generously pays him double the going rate. But he is bitter and hopes that Thomas Edgerton will be shamed into giving him some work as a chancery clerk, which is writing and copying out legal documents. His book, or rather my book, I bestowed upon a virtuous lady in the city who gave me the double value thereof. I will abide patiently the redress of my wrong and relief of my necessity 
until God, the just judge of the world, shall in his grace and mercy move this noble man's mind to do me more good by helping me to some writing work in the offices of the Chancery, which God grant. Amen. Thomas Nash had more success than Robinson in achieving help from his patrons during his career. While we don't know how much money he received for dedicating his books, we do know that he was often invited to stay at the homes of his patrons, often as a way to escape London either because of the plague or because he was in legal trouble with its aldermen. Uh, he's always a house guest of somebody. He always seems to be inviting himself to stay with someone or other or, or ending up somewhere. This is Professor Emma Smith from Oxford University, who's working on a new edition of Nash's play, Summer's Last Will and Testament, which was written while he was staying in the home of John Whitgift, the Archbishop of Canterbury. In it, the allegorical figure of Summer, a king, is confronted by the lack of generosity that his courtiers have bestowed in his absence. It turns out, though, that even calling it a play is stretching things a bit. Uh, so it isn't a play like a Shakespearean play. It isn't designed for the public theatre. It's called a show, and it has a kind of pageant-type feel. The scenario is that Summer is ageing. He is almost at death's door, and he meets his servants and sort of stewards to get a sense of what they have been doing, how they have served him, and to settle his will, to settle his succession. And in the end, he has to adjudicate between autumn and winter, who are sort of arm wrestling about who's going to take over. So it shows us a Nash, perhaps who's a little bit closer to the prose writer, makes a lot happen with words, but isn't doing quite so much with the kind of stage choreography that we might expect from a drama. While this show might not have a nail-biting narrative, what makes it an interesting text for us is that it explores a key theme about what the wealthy members of society, people like Archbishop Whitgift, owe to the rest of the community, especially during difficult times. Nash was writing this show in 1592 at the end of an especially hot summer, which had led to crop failure, so it was a potentially precarious time for everyone. Nash draws an equivalence between the excesses of the real summer temperatures and the allegorical heat that summer's court have subjected the people to. So partly what Summer hears is that his servants have sort of overdone it a bit. Summer has gone a bit, that the summer weather has been a bit excessive. So he hears about that, but he also hears pretty much a litany of, of failure or of self-interest. Most of his servants have not really done exactly what, uh, what he might hope. And in particular, they have tend to have failed with one really key Elizabethan value, Elizabethan virtue, the virtue of hospitality or care sort of care for others, generous care for others. And uh, time after time, these figures come in and, and they're ticked off for a, f a failure to be generous uh, and a failure to look after those less fortunate than themselves. While Nash was concerned about bigger societal issues like how the government of his day handled food shortages, as a freelance writer, he was also understandably concerned about where his next meal was coming from. I asked Emma Smith how Nash would have been paid for Summer's Last Will and Testament. I think in part Nash's payment in Whitgift's household must have been sort of bed and board. He, like other members of that generation, living and working sort of a little bit hand-to-mouth in the commercial print and theatre industries of early modern London, I think he's always uh, grateful for a, for a free meal. That, that's quite a, a good payment uh, to have. So the idea that he might have been resident for some months 
must have actually been it must have been quite a handsome payment, I would have thought. Nash is so interested in uh, listing and describing food in particular in lots lots of his works that I, I wonder if he was somebody who was uh, often hungry or often looking at things to eat that uh, he couldn't readily get for himself. So being in a in a household, you know, running a big kitchen and all of those things must must have been great. So, being a sort of artist-in-residence must have been a fairly sweet deal, but one which, to our modern sensibilities, might also sound quite restrictive. After all, what happens if Nash outstayed his welcome? Did he have to tread carefully so as not to upset his patron? What about the commercial world of print where he could write directly to a public readership? Professor Andrew McRae explains why this might have been a real alternative market for freelance writers. You've got a booming population in London, you've got a big population of people who can read. So the, the apprentices, of course, are all the mercantile activity in, in London. You know, people want entertainment uh, and they're buying um, pamphlets, they're buying, you know, they're buying ballads by the dozen and, and sticking them on the wall so that, and sharing them through reading them aloud. So even if you couldn't read, this didn't shut off the world of print to you as you could hear someone else reading aloud or even teaching you the words of a new ballad, which was sung to a recognisable tune. For writers, popular print became a viable means to reach a wider audience as well as a space where they could forge a public reputation for themselves. And they're questioning what it might mean to be an author in an era of the print, even though the print you know, offered not a lot in terms of in terms of material reward. It did offer a lot in terms of in terms of status, in terms of putting themselves out there, in terms of creating a kind of marketplace for the creation of careers of identities as much as anything else. And the speed at which you could try to improve your social status by becoming known as an author in print was increasingly quick, thanks to the popular form in which Nash wrote, the pamphlet. Perhaps the one thing that that unites a lot of the different kinds of writing at this time was not necessarily a genre, but a, but a physical form, the pamphlet. You know, people talk about buying pamphlets and pamphlets were nice and cheap and, and portable. So people were thinking about, and Nash, among others, thinking about what you could do, 30 pages of, of text, say, you know, that, that someone could flick through on the, on the bookstall and buy, uh, whether it be prose or, or poetry or a bit of a mixture, mixture of both, novelty, currency, topicality, a little bit of scandal, perhaps, you know, uh, a little bit, something a little bit salacious, perhaps, that pushed the bounds of, of censorship. So a good way to build a regular readership was to create a sense of controversy through your writing. Emma Smith sees a parallel with social media platforms today. I mean, sometimes modern parallels seem a bit, a bit cheap, but if you were to think about what drives traffic on social media, it's disagreement or it's extreme statements, it's things that people... It's arguments and it's it's kind of showdowns. I think that's true to some extent of the commercial press in, in the 1590s. In our first episode, we heard about the university Parnassus plays, and it is there that we find a character styled on Nash called Ingenioso, who is haggling with Nash's real-life printer, John Danter, about payment. Ingenioso tries to get more money for a salacious-sounding pamphlet called A Chronicle of Cambridge Cuckolds a cuckold being a man whose wife has been unfaithful to him. You'll give me 40 shillings, a fit reward for one of your rheumatic poets, but as for me, I'll be paid dear, even for the dregs of my wit. 
Little knows the world what belongs to the keeping of a good wit in waters, diets, drinks, tobacco, etc. It is a dainty and costly creature, and therefore I must be paid sweetly. Furnish me with money that I may put myself in a new suit of clothes, and I'll suit thy shop with a new suit of terms. It's the gallantest child my invention was ever delivered of. The title is A Chronicle of Cambridge Cuckolds. Speak quickly, else I am gone. Part of the problem for fictional writers like Ingenioso and real writers like Nash was that while controversy sold, it was also quickly out of date. This meant that it was still incredibly unusual for a freelance writer to make enough money to live on purely through the commercial sales of their writing. Here's Andrew McRae again to explain why. One of the reasons why patronage is so important is the simple economics of publishing, that there wasn't much to be made from selling the rights to your work and, and there was no copyright. So once you'd sold the rights to your work, it could sell a million copies and you'd still only make, you know, a pound or, or, or less. That's just the way it was and, and not many people did make much money at all from actually publishing. So if the authors aren't making that much money from print, who is? Some of the printers are doing reasonably well. I mean, t- they're taking risks, but it's a, it's a commercial enterprise, isn't it? I mean, there's it's risks everywhere and there's risks in the playhouse and so forth. And if you're um, publishing short, cheap works and paying the author relatively little, not a lot to lose. So it seems like writing short pamphlets for publication was more useful as a means to build a reputation than it was to make enough money to live comfortably. But that one-off payment from the publisher wasn't the only way a writer could make money from print. As we've seen from Richard Robinson's meticulous records of patrons who have wronged him, writers could also earn money by dedicating their text to an aristocratic patron. Think of it as a type of PR exercise for the aristocrat. Their name becomes associated with exciting new works. And that benefit to one's reputation worked both ways. Not only was there the potential for payment for a writer, but by aligning themselves to a certain patron, writers like Nash were also basking in some of their reflected social capital. They're getting a sense of authorisation, that their words are authorised. They're trying to balance their sense of responsibility towards a patron with a much more uh, modern sense of an integrity as a writer. Some Elizabethans were bothered by this modern sense of an author who doesn't need a respected aristocrat to vouch for their quality. This included Nash's nemesis in print, a man named Gabriel Harvey. Gabriel Harvey is so anxious about that you've got all these people speaking without authorisation. And that the nightmare that, that, that leads to is this kind of radical atomization, fragmentation of, of society. So no, there's, there's no hierarchy anymore. You know, all order breaks down. Harvey says that he was afraid of, of authors becoming like a monarch in the kingdom of his own humour. A monarch in the kingdom of his own humour. And there's so much going on in that, in that phrase that an author kind of assuming almost the authority of a, of a king or a queen and the authority dro- derived from your humour, you know, your, your individual personality. And in a sense, that's kind of bourgeois individualism. While some writers like Harvey worried about the anarchy unleashed by authors breaking free from hierarchical structures, others made a virtue of this individualism. John Marston, he published some of the most salacious satires of the time. And the 
dedicated one book to himself. Now, it's not completely unknown, but it's quite a statement at the beginning of a book of satires that he must have known not many people would want to be associated with, you know, uh, and yet he gets them into print with that statement on just inside the cover dedicated to himself. So we can see the seeds of modern individualism starting to appear around this time, but not enough that a freelancer could go it completely alone. Conveniently, though, there was another creative industry in town which a writer could turn to to pay the bills, the theatre industry. Of course, there'd always been actors and theatre companies, but with the big population boom in London that Andrew spoke about earlier, came more demand for new plays. Emma Smith explains why the decision to set up permanent theatres in London made a huge difference not only to actors, but also to professional writers. What changes once we get these purpose-built theatres in London and effectively a kind of repertory system of plays in performance is that that's an economic model, a business model, which depends on the same audiences coming back multiple times. That's quite different from when you took touring theatre round where you could take the same play all all around the country because your audience had to change every day because you were in a new place. So this is a golden, this is a really sort of high moment. This is a, this is a great moment for, for writers. The playhouses have a real appetite. They're working through play scripts all the time. They want new plays. It's definitely one of the places where university-educated young men can find work in London. And I think one of the really exciting things we're just starting to uncover is a more sustained dramatic career for Nash. We know that he's involved with the Isle of Dogs, uh, which is a controversial play uh, with Ben Johnson that is lost. We have been interested in the possibility of his collaborating with Shakespeare and probably others on the first part of Henry VI and perhaps elsewhere in those that Henry VI trilogy. But Nash himself talks about his theatre work uh, as if it is a more sustained part of his kind of portfolio career, if you like than those few examples that we know of would really support. So while we don't know the titles of the plays that Nash worked on, he does seem to be getting an income not only from patrons, from publishing his work, but also from writing for the new commercial theatres. We have a diary kept by Philip Henslow, the owner of the Rose Theatre, which tells us a lot about the way playwrights were paid. For example, an old play might be revived and so a completely different writer would be paid to rewrite certain scenes. This was the case for Christopher Marlowe's play Dr Faustus. Henslow paid £4 to the writers William Byrd and Samuel Rowley to update it over a decade after it was first performed. It's possible Nash could have been doing this type of anonymous piecework for the theatres, kind of like a Hollywood script doctor today. I mean, we do... Imagine that Nash is part of uh, Henslow's sort of stable of, of writers who can be brought in to, to do part of a play or part of work that needs to be done quickly. I think there is a, a majority of theatre writers who are uh, freelance. It's one of the many ways that our view of the literary and theatrical culture of this period has been distorted by Shakespeare, who is exceptional in lots of ways, not least sort of economically. Indeed, what set Shakespeare apart, economically speaking, was that he was not only a writer, but an actor and, importantly, also a shareholder in the theatre company he usually wrote for, the Chamberlain's Men. 
that meant that he took home a portion of the money made at the box office. So Shakespeare's, he is a, a writer attached to a theatre company and also an investor in that, in that company. So he has a different payment structure, both for what he writes himself, but for how the theatre performs commercially. Uh, Nash is much more dependent on being given commissions. If we're thinking about precarity, then Shakespeare was in a relatively stable position. As an in-house writer, he's not having to go out and persuade different theatre companies to employ him. In contrast, Nash really has to hustle, whether he's securing himself a writer-in-residence position with an aristocrat, pitching new ideas to a publisher, or looking for piecework with the commercial theatre companies. Well, to write as a kind of freelance writer, probably there now as now, is to have periods of enforced quiet, perhaps which are rather worrying in terms of cash flow, and then periods of extreme activity and uh, deadline pressure. I think that must have been how it was for Nash, that it's not a career that pays in any steady way. Nash writes about this experience of interrupted cash flow in a text called Have With You to Saffron Walden, which was essentially an extended takedown of his nemesis, Gabriel Harvey. Two or three times a month, Nash says he has to put his other writing projects on hold and, as he puts it, prostitute his pen by writing fashionable erotic verses for foppish aristocrats. Twice or thrice in a month, when the bottom of my purse is turned downward and my conduit of ink will no longer flow for want of reparations, I am fain to let my plough stand still in the midst of a furrow and follow some of these new-fangled galliardos and senior fantasticos to whose amorous vianeas and kipatheth I prostitute my pen in hope of gain. Nash is responding to Harvey's accusation that he writes only what is popular or new-fangled, rather than what is useful to society. Harvey had also accused him of being idle or lazy, which Nash also rejects, saying that he spends his days pounding the streets in search of writing work. But otherwise there is no new fangleness in me, but poverty, which alone maketh me so unconstant to my determined studies, nor idleness, more than discontented idle trudging from place to place, to and fro, and prosecuting the means to keep me from idleness. I think it's worth thinking about these people as, as quite mobile. They're mobile socially, upwardly as well as downwardly. They're mobile geographically. They're moving about where the opportunities are. And, and a lot of those opportunities are in London. Uh, the opportunities in terms of the theatre are, are in London. But a lot of them are moving around in, in search of patronage, you know, and, 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 and that happens with Nash as well as with, with a number of his peers. So they're, they're quite unsettled, I think. So to be a freelance writer was to be unsettled in the sense that you had to hustle and keep on the lookout for new sources of money. Writers like Nash, who had mostly have come from the middling sort, also had the potential to improve their social standing or to end up in penury, as unfortunately seems to have been the case for Nash. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll hear more about the importance of mobility through the spaces of London. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate DeRaker. The Precarious World of Thomas Nash is produced and written by myself, Kathy Schrank and Archie Cornish. Editing by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Readings by James Tucker. 
This podcast was made possible by a grant from the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council. To find out more about this project and to access other Thomas Nash resources, visit research.ncl.ac.uk forward slash the Thomas Nash Project. Thank you.